Hello, friends, and welcome to this special Advent series of Speaking with Joy. Advent begins this evening. In Christian liturgy, the day doesn't begin with the hope of morning prayer, but with the hesitation of vespers, the gentle entreaties of evening prayer. Today in St. Andrews, the sun will have been tucked in her seaside bed for four hours when the priest's words finally ring out, making a new liturgical season. The chilly, faithful churchgoers will huddle near each other, candles flickering in the darkness, their visible breath rising against the stone walls of the church. The priest will pray, Lighten our darkness, we beseech thee, O Lord, and by thy great mercy defend us from all perils and dangers of this night. This is where we begin Advent, in the dark and cold, waiting with held breath and strained eyes for the coming of the light. Advent comes from the word adventus, meaning arrival, invasion, or coming. The prophet Isaiah foresaw this coming, writing, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and on those living in the land of deep darkness a light has dawned. Since the very earliest years of the Christian church, from the 5th century, or likely even before that, Christians have kept the four weeks prior to Christmas holy, a season of restraint, fasting, hope, and preparation, making room in our hearts for the coming of Christ. For me personally, Advent is a favorite season because it makes room for longing, a time to press into the desire for things to be put right, a recognition that things are not right right now, that they are not as they should be. It gives me a space to admit how much I want Jesus to come near and how far he can feel sometimes. In Advent, we remember that Christ has come. We invite him to come each day into our hearts, and we prepare our hearts for his final return to judge the living and the dead. So this year, in the next four weeks, I invite you to join me in keeping Advent. Whether you are new to Advent and you come from a lower church background where this was never experienced or practice, or you're an old Advent veteran, perhaps you are a believer, or perhaps you're an unbeliever or a maybe believer, wherever you are, I invite you to join me in the waiting. Join me in keeping Advent. Over the next four weeks, I'll be reposting old episodes about Advent from previous seasons of my podcast, along with occasional new excerpts along the way. I'll also be posting a whole bunch of Advent resources on my blog at joyclarkson.com, where you can find books and music and devotionals that you can use for your own journey through Advent. This first episode will explain the history of Advent in different ways that you might consider celebrating it and preparing for Christmas with your own family and in your own life. Of course, uh, you can always find more resources and my more personal reflections on Advent through my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Joy Clarkson, where I'll continue to post things as well. As ever, I cannot begin an episode without issuing a huge thank you to all of my patrons who are keeping me afloat as I record this podcast and try to finish my PhD. So without further ado, let me welcome you into this first week of Advent, inviting you to sit in the dark and wait for the light. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know how it is when some great king enters a large city and dwells in one of its houses. Because of his dwelling in that single house, the whole city is honored, and enemies and robbers cease to molest it. Even so, it is with the king of all. He has come into our country and dwelt in one body amidst the many. And in consequence, the designs of the enemy against mankind have been foiled and the corruption of death, which formerly held them in its power, has simply ceased to be. For the human race would have perished utterly had not the Lord and Savior of all, the Son of God, come among us to put an end to death.
Hello friends and welcome back to Speaking with Joy. It's me, your host, Joy Clarkson, and I'm so glad to be here discussing good and true and beautiful things with you all. I'm recording this podcast from Oxford, England, where I have been studying away on my PhD on popular art and moral formation, and I'm so excited to begin this week's podcast as we transition from the normal episodes into Advent. Now, the opening uh, bits of reading that you heard were from John 1.14 in the New Testament, and then from On the Incarnation by St. Athanasius. Yesterday, um, Sunday, if you're listening to this uh, in order, was the first day of Advent. And this is a really special time in the church year in which we anticipate the arrival of Christmas. And in doing that, we anticipate the arrival of Christ. It's been a tradition in the church for thousands of years, literally, uh, to celebrate the four weeks before Christmas as a season of preparation and anticipation for the arrival of the Christ child. In theology, we would call this happening, this Christ coming to the world, the incarnation, God becoming man, taking on our flesh um, to begin his redemptive process. And because this has been such a part of church tradition through many years, there is a lot of art that explores and celebrates and prepares our hearts for the beauty of Christmas. And because traditionally there's uh, so much in the church that celebrates and looks at the season, there is a lot of beautiful art that can kind of serve as a guide for us. And so I thought I would do that with the podcast. This would be a guide and a preparation for the beauty and holiness and delight of Christmas. So for the next four weeks, we will be looking um, at ways to prepare our hearts for that. This week, we'll be talking about the coming, talking about what Advent is and why it's been celebrated, and talking all about the idea of the incarnation of Christ coming into the world, Christ coming into our heart, and Christ coming again um, in the second coming. Uh, we'll also be talking about the mother, about Mary's role in the in the Christmas story and how significant that is and what it teaches us about being Christians consecrated to God. And then we'll be talking about the metaphor of light, um, that in a dark world, what we long for is light that takes up and removes darkness from the world. And then finally, we'll be talking about Christ as the good shepherd. So I'm so excited to kind of explore these uh, they're really images. They're things that when you hear these words, when you hear coming, mother, light, and shepherd, hopefully images and emotions come up in your mind. And um, I think they are deeply implanted in our, our soul as desires for a redemption, for a closeness with God. And so I'm so excited to start kind of exploring that in the context of the Christmas story, preparing our hearts for the Christmas season. And if Advent's something you've never really experienced or explored before, if you came from a tradition that that wasn't very traditional, um, then I'm excited to be able to kind of share a little bit with you about what the history of that is and why Christians all over the world celebrate these four weeks before Christmas. I also just wanted to say a huge thank you to everyone who has listened in on the podcast for this last kind of season, the last semester. I have just loved getting your comments and your thoughts on the show. Um, You always deepen my own understanding and your encouraging words really keep me going. I also wanted to say a big thank you to everyone on Patreon who supported me this semester. Patreon is kind of a new model of the old model of patronage in which people would support artists so that they could be able to make art uh, that was meaningful and good and that built their communities. And so I have a Patreon where people have supported me $10 a month. Um, and by doing that, I also, as a thank you, give them secret podcasts and newsletters and other kind of playlists and other kind of fun little resources. But really, most of all, that is a thank you because you all are keeping the podcast going and keeping me going as I pursue my PhD. I also wanted to say that if um, the Patreon is something you've been interested in, December is a good time to join in because I'm going to be trying to do a lot of kind of further Advent resources and fun Christmassy things and recipes. So check out Patreon Joy Clarkson. And thank you all to everyone, too, who prayed for me this week. I've been trying to write the third chapter of my PhD, trying to finish it before Christmas, and I'm well on my way, and I think your prayers sent me there. So thank you all. I also wanted to mention, um, I, as this, this may come as no surprise to you all, but I am, I love getting into kind of the feeling of Advent and Christmas, and now that it's December, I have holly up on my door. And so I always like giving people kind of resources for fun ways to celebrate. And one really fun way to celebrate is by finding my brother Joel Clarkson's Christmas album. 
The version of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel that I was playing behind when I was doing the reading for the beginning is from that album. And Joel is a gifted musician. He attended Berkeley College of Music. He's a film scorer. But one of the great things he's done that's been a real resource to many people is just these beautiful piano albums that are kind of atmospheric and beautiful. And he did this album, it's volume two of Midwinter Carols, to kind of capture the feeling of the coldness of winter um, and to think about the songs that we sing to get ourselves through winter and um, and the warmth that celebration and Christmas brings. So definitely go check that out. I think you can find them at joelclarkson.com and it will kind of add a sparkle to your Christmas season as it has to mine already. And if you hear any music today that happens to be piano with kind of Christmassy songs, you can guarantee that it's Joel's. One last final logistical note, it really helps me when you all leave ratings and reviews on iTunes, and it also helps the podcast get out to other people who are interested in similar things. So if you enjoyed the podcast today, please go leave your thoughts on iTunes, um, or share it with a friend on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. So with all of our T's crossed and our I's dotted, let us dive into this week's episode, this week's Advent episode, exploring the history and tradition of Advent and the glory and wonder of the coming of Christ into the world. Now, I realize that by starting a series on Advent, many listeners may wonder, what is that and why should I do celebrate practice or what am I meant to do with Advent? And for some of us, this may be um, old habit, old hand. We grew up in traditions where it was celebrated, where there were Advent wreaths, where there were weekly readings or themes. But for others, maybe you grew up in a kind of um, more non-denominational church where it was mentioned but not celebrated, but I hope that by kind of exploring the roots and the history of Advent, we can all learn something. People who grew up in a tradition with Advent, hopefully it will kind of reinvigorate our vision of what Advent can be and how it can really be a serious spiritual practice. And for those who have never discovered it, um, I hope that this will be kind of an introduction of a rhythm into your life that will bring you back to the beauty and wonder of the church year and kind of connect you to the tradition of 2,000 years of Christians and the ways that they have celebrated God's work in the world. We'll explore this theme through the visual example of Advent wreaths and Advent calendars, which are actually more recent inventions. But before that, first we will explore the history of this in the church and how it came about and what the intention behind it was and what its purpose was supposed to be in our spiritual lives. I also want to just issue a quick kind of ping to tell you to go somewhere else, which is that my mom recently did a podcast with Malcolm Geit, and he explained all about Advent and the church year, and he does it much better than me, and he has a British accent. So after listening to this one, go check out my mom's podcast on that as well. And if it's not out by the time that mine is out, um, just wait, it'll be out soon. But for now, back to the history of Advent. At its most simple, as I've already said, Advent comprises the four weeks prior to Christmas. And it's seen as a season of preparation and of anticipation and of longing for the coming of Christ. Advent comes from the Latin phrase Adventus, which people usually define as something like the arrival or the coming or even something as kind of serious as the invasion. And the arrival, the coming, all these things that it's talking about are in reference to the incarnation, the idea of God arriving in earth in the form of a baby. So all of this, the season leading up to Christmas, is us learning how to anticipate, how to prepare, how to hope and expect for this great arrival, this great happening, this great invasion of God into our world. Now, of course, it's always kind of difficult to know the exact history of these things, especially when they're so buried in the past. But it's thought that Advent was celebrated very early in the church. So it was one of the kind of first traditions that was implanted in the community life of what it was to be a Christian in the early church. We don't know exactly when it came about, but we know for certain that it was already in existence, that people were already celebrating it by 480. And oftentimes Advent was associated with a period, period of fasting, of kind of 
um, putting things away in your heart and your life to kind of prepare for Christmas. This was associated with all kinds of different readings, so a lot of it would be kind of looking back at the prophecies about Christ in the Old Testament, um, focusing on the Annunciation, as we'll be doing, and kind of seeing the whole story of God's redemption and kind of really sitting with it and enjoying it in this season, kind of these four weeks. It's also helpful to know that Advent is usually understood in the broader context of something called the liturgical year. This is also uh, called things like the church calendar or the church year. And it's basically just a cycle of seasons that um, more that in the old days churches would celebrate. So that if you start at the very beginning, Advent's actually the very beginning of the church year, you could slowly work your way through kind of the whole arc of God's story of redemption for us. So to give you an example, um, a Western, the Western church here, there's different churches that celebrated this in different ways, and there's Eastern, Western, but the general principle is there. So in the Western church here, you have Advent is the very beginning, and that's celebrating the anticipation and the longing for Christ's coming, for God's redemption. Then you have Christmas tide, which is 12 days long, and you celebrate um, God's the actual incarnation. Uh, you're not anticipating it anymore. You're exp experiencing it and celebrating it. Then you have Epiphany Tide, which is celebrating um, Christ growing up. You have Ordinary Time. Then you have uh, Pre-Lent and Shrove Tide, which is when you get to eat lots of pancakes and things. Then you have Lent, which is kind of the fasting period before um, Easter, which celebrates Christ's death and resurrection. And then after Easter, you have Pentecost and the, found, the founding of the church. That's kind of what that's celebrating. And then you go back to kind of ordinary time and you work your way back until Advent. And the idea of this is that as you, as you focus during these weeks on these kind of, the, these bits of God's story, that you would really be able to kind of make this story your own story. So as you move through the year, as you move through anticipating Christ's coming and then you celebrate Christ's coming and then you celebrate his, his growing old and living the life and experiencing the life of humans that we are, and then you fast in preparation for his death and resurrection. And then you celebrate his resurrection and you think about how the church was founded through the descending of the Holy Spirit. If you did that every single year, the idea was that it would kind of etch into your heart the story of God's grand narrative of um, salvation for us. And this is not just tied into kind of hypothetically we're thinking about these things. It's also tied into the readings of the church with something we might call a lectionary. And the lectionary is the series of readings that you would move through throughout these different times. So if you're in Advent, you're thinking about the coming of Christ, so you're going to read all of the uh, kind of anticipation narratives in the Old Testament, all the things that point to Christ's arrival. Um, and the other idea behind the lectionary, and there's always an Old Testament, usually Old Testament, Psalm, New Testament, and Gospel. Uh, and so the idea is that in the old, old days, like in the medieval church, supposedly if you went to church every day uh, throughout the year, you would hear the entire Bible read to you every single year. And that's a pretty amazing thing when you think about it, to live so completely with your church into the story of God's creation uh, and his creation, his uh, redemption, his continued faithfulness to us really would kind of shape the way you experience time so that it's not like you have this kind of faith that's kind of out there and distant, but that you mark the seasons even by which part of the church year it is, which, what thing you're meditating on and thinking about in your heart about God's plan for salvation. And Advent, you could say, is kind of the queen of those seasons, because what could be more important than God's coming to us, the Advent, the arrival of God in human form, the incarnation? Uh, and that's why the two kind of like most celebrated, so if you kind of forget about everything else, the ones people most often celebrate in the church here are Advent, which is anticipating um, the nativity and Christmas and God's coming as a baby into the world, and then um, Lent, uh, which is the period before Easter, when you're kind of thinking about your sins and preparing yourself to receive the risen Christ. So that's kind of the history behind both Advent and the liturgical year more generally. It's not meant to be a rule or something that you have to live up to or perform for God, but rather something that invites you into an experience that shapes your heart, that makes seasons open to contemplating and thinking about and praying about certain things. So if you've never experienced it before, uh, let me invite you into the season of Advent, into reckoning and thinking about the coming. Which leads us up to our example of Advent wreaths and then Advent calendars.
Now, both of these are actually inventions a little bit more recent. And um, it's actually fun if you start kind of poking around to realize that a lot of the kind of traditions that we have of Christmas in the West, when we think about kind of the feeling of it, Christmas markets, Christmas trees, a lot of those things come from Germany. And that is the case with both Advent wreaths and with Advent calendars. Now the Advent wreaths are an older invention. They were first sort of talked about around the 16th century with the German Lutherans. And the idea was that you had this kind of circular wreath that would have four candles, each one representing the um, one week in Advent. Um, and it was kind of formed a crown with a big candle in the middle. And each week on, uh, as the new week in Advent began, you'd light one candle and discuss the theme for Advent that week in your church, uh, and then work your way around until you had all of them, and then you have the big candle um, and all of them lit finally by Christmas. And this was kind of a way to count down Christmas. Um, this was originally kind of more famously put into practice uh, in a way that caught on by a Protestant pastor in Germany named Johann Heinrich Wickern, I'm probably saying that wrong, um, and who was a pioneer in urban mission work among the poor. I'm reading a bit of this, uh, just if you snoop around on Wikipedia, you can find more about this. He was kind of finding that the children that he was teaching, um, that they were impatient for Christmas and that they said, oh, what is this season of Advent all about? We just want it to be Christmas. We want the baby Jesus to be here and all of our gifts to be here. So we thought, what, what was a way that I could kind of um, help them lean into their expectation rather than just kind of rushing through it? And so he had the idea to do this Advent wreath and he actually did 19 red tapers and four large white candles. So I think he was doing that for um, all for December 1st to December 24th. And every morning he would light one of the red candles and the children come in and watch him do that. And it was this way of kind of marking the seasons up until you got to Christmas during Advent. Um, and that caught on mostly people uh, didn't do 24 candles, they started just doing the four candles, the one in the middle. And people would often decorate them with red ribbon and pine cones and holly and laurel and sometimes mistletoe. And it became kind of a central thing that you could have in your home. And while churches did this, people also started doing it as kind of a, a personal devotional thing with their families. So my family always, every year we used to have an advent wreath and we would go to church and then we would come home and in the afternoon we'd have some kind of sweet treat uh, we would light uh, whichever candle it was for that week, and we would do a little reading on whatever the theme of that week was, and think about Advent and um, kind of discuss it. So that was how my family did it. And um, there's all this kind of symbolism behind the wreath, too. Um, so the flames of the candles represent the Christmas light, um, the approaching and coming hope and peace. When you think about the verses where it says, uh, that a light shone in the darkness and the darkness could not overcome it. That's always an image of the candles. But then it's also in the shape of a crown, which is meant to symbolize Christ the King, which um, is also Christ the King Sunday is the week before Advent starts. So there's all this kind of imagery, but also it's just a fun way to mark the time before Christmas came. And I would like to suggest to you that if you wanted a fun way to get, if you have children, to get your, your kids involved and excited about Advent, maybe you could look up kind of some ideas about how to make your own Advent wreath and then uh, do that once a week, light one of the candles as you're getting closer to Christmas, find an Advent devotional and I'll, I'll put some suggestions in at the end and in my um, blog post and that would be a really fun way to get your children involved in kind of doing that together. Um, but another fabulous invention by the Germans, thank you Germans, was the Advent calendar. And while the Lutherans got Advent wreaths in the 16th century, this is even more recent. This was in the 19th century and it kind of came as a way to prepare for Christmas, but it was also kind of a lot of fun. So there were You've probably seen these in, I mean, I'm sure in, in supermarkets, but it is a little calendar and they kind of did it on, um, they would usually do it through December 1st to 24th. Advent kind of changes, the dates change every year, but they did that because they thought, oh, well, we can count on it being around that time every year. Um, and each day on the calendar has like a little door and you can look inside and there will be some kind of 
Uh, and some of them it used to be like a reading or um, my family, this is not very holy, but we would always get the ones with little chocolate in it. So every day you'd open a new one and get a chocolate. Um, and they also had ways of marking this also where you could see Advent clocks or um, like we talked about, Advent candles. So all of these were kind of, or they also just would hang up a little picture every single day. And all of these were ways to mark the days in Advent, um, looking forward to Christmas and to kind of get ready to dwell on things, to think about them and prepare your heart for Christmas. And the Advent calendars too. Um, I know people often talk about uh, the kind of secularization of Christmas, but there's also a lot of fun. Um, I, I don't think we should think of fun and the delight and the celebration as separate from the preparing our hearts for Christmas. And as a little girl, having in my mind Advent tied up also with chocolate and beautiful little images and warm, cozy things and Christmas trees was kind of a fun thing. So I would definitely say one easy fun way to kind of begin your advent journey would be to get a advent wreath or an advent calendar in your home and they're pretty easy to find you can find them in supermarkets go crazy and find your own but that's just a way to give you kind of an an overview of the history of advent of its place in the church year that was created as this way to to invite us into the rhythms of god's overarching story so that every year we would live into the rhythm of god's story of salvation. Now, in the next section, we're going to talk about a poem by R.S. Thomas called The Coming and talk about what it is that we're really preparing our hearts for in Advent. And God held in his hand a small globe. Look, he said. The sun looked. Far off, as through water, he saw a scorched land of fierce color. The light burned there. Crusted buildings cast their shadows. A bright serpent, a river, uncoiled itself, radiant with slime. On a bare hill, a bare tree saddened the sky. Many people held out their thin arms to it, as though waiting for a vanished April to return to its crossed boughs. The sun watched them. Let me go there, he said. So the poem I just read you is The Coming by R.S. Thomas, who is a Welsh Anglican priest. And in the poem, he's imagining God the Father and God the Son looking at Earth as he describes as the small globe that God holds in his hand. It reminds me of... And Julian of Norwich, who is this mystic, um, she imagined that God held the whole world in his hand and it was like um, a little chestnut, I think, or a hazelnut. And that's kind of this image that God holds the world in his hand. And together they look at this world and they see this land that is exhausted and tired. It says it's scorched and slimy and um, covered by a serpent. So it's this picture of our broken world. And um, as he looks in this, then they see the people who are holding out their thin arms, this kind of desperate image of a people longing for wholeness and fruit for April, which is spring and beauty and life uh, in a world that seems kind of hopeless. And then seeing that Christ looks at that world, our world that's broken. And I love how simply it says, the sun watched them. Let me go there, he said. And it's this picture of Christ being moved to come to earth um, to become man, to save us. And to me, this really beautifully and simply depicts the heart of what it is that we're waiting for in Advent. And this is part of why I love the season of Advent. Advent kind of lets us rest into two kind of central um, feelings or ideas. One of them is it lets us acknowledge the real brokenness of the world, all the ways that we see that there needs to be restoration and wholeness and the ways in which we desire um, some kind of salvation. I was watching, uh, so I kind of follow this band called the 1975, which I've talked to you all about in previous episodes, kind of almost as a fascination. And it was so interesting the other day because the leader of the band, Maddie Healy, um, who, who used to be very uh, outspokenly atheist, but in this interview recently, he said, you know, I've realized that 
I want salvation as much as the next person. And as he said that, he started talking about it. And what he meant is we all have this deep sense of the brokenness of the world. And we all have this deep sense of the kind of um, bent towards destruction that humankind has. We fight with each other. We ru- we are ruiners. We <laughs> ruin things. And it seems like we almost can't help ourselves as we do that. And I thought that was such a profound thing for him to say to somebody who's not a believer, but who can still recognize this sense that we long for a wholeness that feels like it's out of our reach. And when we look at the brokenness of the world, it could lead us just to despair because we say, you know, well, how could God have let it get to this point? And when you read a lot of the Old Testament, and that's a lot of actually what you would lean into in Advent, you see that a lot of the prophets, you don't have to feel guilty for asking that. A lot of the prophets said, God, how did you let it get so broken like this? And I think that in some ways, you know, that's maybe the question of the problem of evil. How can there be evil in the world when there's a good God? And I think in some ways it's an unanswerable question. But the real answer that God gives us is that he is not distant from that pain. He is not indifferent to our suffering, to um, the world that is rife with injustice and with disaster. And that the answer to this question is that God comes and he makes himself vulnerable to all of the brokenness and the ugliness of the world. Um, And that it's through making himself vulnerable to the world that we're redeemed, that he takes all of our experiences of negativity, of sin, and he makes himself vulnerable to that. And that, I think, is really beautifully depicted in this very small, kind of simple poem when he says he looks at all the brokenness of the world. And the answer he gives it is to enter it himself. And that goes back kind of to the, um, to the poem, not the poem, but the section I read in On the Incarnation by Athanasius at the very beginning. Now, this is a wonderful, pretty succinct, beautiful piece of theology. If you would like to read something that is really profound, but that I think is is not terribly hard to understand and to kind of get to the very close at the very beginning of Christianity, read on the Incarnation by Athanasius. It was at a point at which in, in the church history where they were trying to figure out, they're trying to make sense of what who Jesus was and what it meant for us in the world. And there were all these questions, things that we now have very much settled of, was Jesus fully God? Was he a man? Was he just an example? And Athanasius was this kind of um, tenacious person who wanted to say, no, God is fully God and fully man. And that he came down, he he incarnated himself in the world as his purpose of redemption. There's this wonderful quote, I believe it's by, it was the idea that through the incarnation, God redeemed, I mean, yes, through Jesus' death, but first through Jesus's coming into the human body, coming into our world. He assumed our nature so that he could heal us. Gregory of Nazianzus, another person around this time, um, one of the, I think he's one of the Cappadocian fathers. Yeah, I think so. Um, He said, that which Christ did not assume, he could not save. So it's the idea that Christ came and he took on everything that it is to be a human so that by doing that, he could then live a perfect life and save us. I think we often focus on Christ's death, and so we should as the redemptive uh, part of our lives. But what we sometimes forget is that the redemption didn't start at the cross. It started at the incarnation. It started at Christ taking on our bodies and in our world and making himself vulnerable to that. And that was when the redemption started. And it's kind of this idea of a radical moment in history, that nothing else was as important as this moment when Christ became human. And that somehow, as as the quote from Athanasius kind of demonstrates, that by Christ becoming a body, by Christ becoming a human, um, it it did something radical. It was like a disjunction in the rest of history, that all of history revolves around this point. There's this wonderful quote by um, Tolkien um, in On Fairy Stories, which is a wonderful uh, kind of talk. And he talks about how uh, it was a talk at St. Andrews, actually, where I was, uh, where I did my master's, where I'm doing my PhD. And he talks about uh, how fairy stories are kind of ingrained in the human psyche. And there's this part where he says, the Gospels contain a fairy story or a story of a larger kind, which embraces all of fairy stories. But this story has entered history and the primary world. 
The desire and aspiration of subcreation, which is all of the fairy stories, have been raised to the fulfillment in creation. The birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of man's history, and the resurrection is the eucatastrophe of the story of incarnation. The story begins and ends in joy. It, it has preeminently the inner consistency of reality. There is no tale ever told that men would rather find was true, none which so many skeptical men have accepted as true on its own merits. So it's this picture of Christ's incarnation being this joyous moment of God's entry into the world when salvation almost became inevitable at that moment. So when we think about what it is that we are desiring, uh, what it is that we're waiting for, what it is that we're anticipating, it is this joyous, beautiful thing. And that we're not just anticipating Christ's death, but that in his incarnation and in taking on our flesh, um, he is like the good king who came into our city and bound the devil. And he was saying once and for all that he loves us, that, um, that he doesn't will our destruction. And one more quote, sorry, I was going to read you one more quote from Athanasius. He makes the point that Christ coming in a body wasn't just kind of like, oh, well, I'll do this because it kind of demonstrates it, that it was really a part of an integral part of what it was to be redeemed. He says, The Lord did not come to make a display. He came to heal and to touch suffering men. For one who wanted to make a display, the thing would have just appeared to dazzle the beholders. But for him who came to heal and to teach the way was not merely to dwell here, but to put himself at the disposal of those who needed him, and to be manifested according as they could bear it, not uh, vitiating the value of the divine by appearing... Uh, to exceed their capacity to receive it. So to kind of uh, bring that down, what he's saying is that Christ didn't just appear as a man to kind of overawe us. He came to make himself available to us, to be vulnerable to the difficulties of the world, to touch and to heal. So this is what it is that we are desiring at Advent. We are desiring and we are preparing for this realization that Christ has come to us, that he's made himself vulnerable to everything that it is to be a human, um, that he came wildly into this form of a baby, and that, that was his answer to all the evil and pain and suffering in the world. It wasn't just to zap it away and make us all go away. It was to enter into our pain, to say, your life, your body, this world matters so much that I would enter into it. But that kind of touches on one other thing that I think we all distinctly feel, which is that Christ did come, but things are still not perfect. We still desire something else, something more. The redemption is not complete. And if you didn't know that, then you'd have to be living under a rock. And so that taps into this second part of what we're longing for, what we're preparing for in Advent, um, which will bring us to our final musical example of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, or Vinnie Vinnie Emmanuel, and the O Antiphons. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, the young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. This is the beautiful prophetic vision that Isaiah gives in Isaiah 11, 1 through 10, what it will be like when the chosen one, the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah comes. And these are all the sorts of beautiful images that were given 
to anticipate Christ's coming. And Christ's coming was beautiful, good, and as we can see now with our Christian perspective two years, 2,000 years on, it was salvific. But there's something in this vision that we didn't see fully completed in Christ's life. We see there this kind of picture of whole earthly renewal, um, this image of the world where uh, it's totally turned upside down. I think what I love about this is so often we talk about man's evil, but there's also this sense of a brokenness in the natural world itself. We see violence in the animal kingdom, and this describes a world in which not only are people peaceful, not only do people not harm, but even the natural world itself. Um, lions will, know, will eat straw, they won't eat meat, where um, a child put its hand in a cobra's nest and it wouldn't hurt it. So it's this picture of a complete renewal of the entire world. And that is what we're given to anticipate Christ, but it's also what we're left desiring now. And this leads us to the second kind of anticipation that we're given in Advent. Um, Bernard of Clairvaux said that Advent is anticipating three comings of Christ. The first is the coming of Christ in the Nativity, in the Incarnation, where he comes to redeem and to buy back our souls with his life and his death and his resurrection. The second is the coming of Christ every day into our heart, that in Advent we remember that we invite Christ every day to renew our hearts. But the third is that we prepare ourselves, we desire and we anticipate Christ's final coming, when this kind of beautiful, apocalyptic, final restoration of all things um, will be actualized, when what was inaugurated in Christ uh, will be completed. There's this uh, phrase they always teach you if you've done any Bible classes, which is called inaugurated eschatology. And I'm going to tell you what both of those words mean, because it really is something that helped me think about the world that we live in. Inaugurated um, basically means beginning. It's like we think of with a, uh, a president. Um, when they have their inauguration, it's when they're put into power. And then eschatology means end times. It's like the ending things. So the idea behind this kind of phrase is that Christ's reign has already been inaugurated through his incarnation, through his life on earth. But it hasn't yet come to completeness. And so we see the eschatology, the final end, the final restoration of all things, has not yet been completed. It's something that's been begun, but is not yet. We call it the now. Christ's kingdom is present now as we live in his spirit, as we live good lives as much as we can. And we can see Christ's kingdom coming in there. But ultimately, we desire a completed restoration of the world. And Advent invites us to anticipate that, to lean into that desire, to see in our minds this picture of a world that could be redeemed. I always think of that beautiful image um, in scripture where it says they'll beat their swords into plowshares and they shall no longer learn war. We read that today in church. And that's also what we're invited to desire in Advent. We're invited to desire Christ's second coming. And we're invited to lean into that. And that's something that I really appreciated and loved um, because I, I have so often felt the kind of disconnect between, yes, Christ redeems me and there's some love and goodness in that, but there's also so much brokenness in the world that I still desire to be renewed. And so that's kind of what Advent also invites us to lean into, that we should hope and anticipate and long for Christ's second coming that will renew all things and draw all things back to himself. And that leads us back to um, the, the song that I had playing over while I was reading that passage from Isaiah, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Now this is one song that we often sing in around Christmas, and it's interesting because it is an Advent hymn, is usually what we think about. Um, now many of you may not know that technically you're not supposed to sing Christmas songs during Advent because you're supposed to be anticipating, not celebrating Christ's arrival quite yet. And so um, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is one that people often sing because it's a song of, of longing for Christ's coming, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. So I'm sure you're all familiar with this, but this is a hymn that we often sing during Advent. But it actually has a very old, um, a very old connection, and it's also connected with seven other um, antiphones or hymns similar to it. So it's, again, kind of like with Advent, it's a little bit unsure of when it came about, but we know that they were at least in existence by the 6th century, which would have been the 500s, um, which is only a hundred years after we know for sure that um, Advent was around. 
And um, the O antiphones were these kind of songs or hymns that were often sung in um, monastic communities, and they were often sung in the last seven days before Advent, so one was sung every day. And there's seven of them, so it's O, I'm going to say these wrong, even though I'm a theological person, I cannot say actual Latin, so forgive me, but O Sapentia, which is O Wisdom, and the reason they're called the O antiphones, I didn't say this, is because they start, they all start with O, because it's O come, O come, O Wisdom. So O Sapentia, which is O Wisdom, O Adonai, which is O Lord, O Radix Jesse, which is O Root of Jesse, O Clavis David, O Key of David, O Oriens, which is O Dayspring, O Rex Gentium, which is the uh, O King of Nations, and then O Emmanuel, which is God with us. And so these were meant to be sung one each day leading up to Christmas, and uh, it was meant to also communicate overall this message. So it's actually an acrostic, so if you put all of them together, it would be E. R-O-C-R-A-S, and you may be thinking, okay, Joy, that's aerocras, and that's not a word, but it is a phrase in Latin, which means tomorrow I will be there. And the image of it is that it is anticipating Christ's coming. So as we prepare for Advent, um, and as we think about Christ coming into the world through the incarnation, we also anticipate his second coming with this kind of um, desire and this acrostic that when you read it all out together says tomorrow I will be there hoping that Christ will come tomorrow. So I think it's just wonderful when you are singing this in church now to think about the deep history that this has had and also the more profound meaning it has behind all the songs together that for at least 1500 years people who were longing to um, to celebrate, to worship, and also to anticipate Christ's second coming have been singing these songs. And they're all deeply, richly theological. They're all about the titles of Christ. So Christ is known as Wisdom, Lord, Root of Jesse, Key of David, Dayspring, King of Nations, and the God who is with us. Um, and that as we sing through all of those, we are desiring that Christ should come tomorrow, that he should bring his final kind of resting place with us. And I think that that is the final, the final thing to talk about with Advent, is all throughout um, the Old Testament, you have this theme that comes again and again, which is the idea of God dwelling with us. That um, from the very beginning in Genesis, to the building of the temple, to the prophecies and the, um, and the prophets, there's this idea that God longs to dwell with his people. And what we see in the incarnation is that God comes to dwell with us. John 1, 1 that I read at the beginning, it says, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Another way to translate that would be, and he tabernacled amongst us. The tabernacle in the Old Testament was where God's presence, uh, where they set up a tent for God's presence to come. And so when it says that God came and dwelt among us, he tabernacled amongst us, it was this picture that this was the final desire um, of the whole Hebrew uh, Bible was um, kind of inaugurated. And then when we see in Revelation, it says, um, and they will need no light for the Lord will be their light. And there's this sense that finally in the holy city, God will be totally present with us once and for all and always. So as you sing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel this year, remember Advent, remember that you are celebrating, that you're anticipating his coming that that coming is um, in, in the incarnation, but it's also in our hearts every day, and also that we long for that final and second coming that will bring uh, wholeness and completeness to the world at last. So I thought that I would end with this beautiful setting of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel by the Benedictines of Mary, and I hope that you join me next week when we can discuss again the beauty of Advent.